Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Welcome to the Action Catalyst podcast. And today we are thinking forward with a very special guest, Deborah Westfall. Deborah is the former CEO and co-founder of Toffler Associates, which was ranked in Inc. Magazine's top 5,000 fastest growing private companies, along with Southwestern Family of Companies. She has also got a fascinating scientific background, which we'll get into. She considers herself both a humanist and futurist. So, Deborah, thank you for joining us on the Action Catalyst. So glad to be here. This is exciting. Well, just bring myself and our listeners up to speed. You've had over 30 years of experience working with some very high-level organizations from government agencies to Fortune 500 companies on almost every continent. So how did you get to where you are today? You know, it was probably my upbringing. My dad was an electrician, uh, master wireman, actually, and we built houses and just did a lot of interesting things. And uh, during that upbringing, I was there by his side the whole time. And so that kind of thought to work on things, learn how systems work, you know, it just, I just probably grew up with that. And when I decided what I was going to do, I went to engineering school and my first job out of uh, engineering school was with the Air Force as a civilian working with advanced weapon systems and technology. And, you know, one thing led to another and found myself getting an MBA and rest is kind of kind of history. Wow. Well, what can you tell us was the most interesting weapon that you had the ability to work on that is not classified or whatever. So I got to start uh, some of the the analysis for the, it was at the time it was the multi-role fighter, which is now the uh, the joint strike fighter, worked on the helmet mounting queuing system and the short range AIM-9X missile, and also the bomb rack for the F-22, which was really kind of an interesting project. So, you know, spent 12 years with the Air Force as a civilian working that technology, and it was, it was fabulous. Man, so fascinating. Part of your resume, as you mentioned, was being in the Air Force and uh, having the opportunity to work with NASA. And so when you're looking at space and aviation technology right now, and you think of the future, what is your thought on the privatization of the space race and what all is going on with the future of space travel? Yeah, space is, uh, it's amazing. It's very close to my heart. I started probably working uh, in the area of space, probably in the mid nineties. And, and that was really at the time of a lot of commercialization of space. And that was in the information and communication technology. Maybe people remember where there was talk that we were going to paint the skies black with satellites. And there, everybody seemed to have a commercial satellite architecture that was going up. There was several problems with that. And mainly one of them was the launch cost. And so what uh, launch companies are doing now, Elon Musk and SpaceX and some of these other kind of very innovative uh, space launch companies, 
they're bringing down that price of, of space. And, you know, the evolution of space is, is kind of taking a, a familiar journey just as we look at naval trade back in, in history. And so space started with the, the communications. And now we're, because, you know, we're able to get up to space in a much more affordable way, it's still very expensive, it's going to open up a whole bunch of new opportunities and it uh, will be commercialized. And that brings some real challenges with security and protection and, and all of the other things that go along with that. But yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. And it, for me, it's not just about space, but it's also about what space can do for us here on Earth, too. So you mentioned Elon Musk and SpaceX, and what are your thoughts about going to Mars and how the plans are for accomplishing that in our lifetime? You know, that's uh, there's a lot of challenges with going to Mars and, you know, especially taking people to, to Mars. It's a long ways. One of the biggest challenges is people create waste. We eat things. And so we have packages that, uh, you know, from the food. And, and so the big challenge is, is how do we take enough stuff with us, but also, you know, have stuff to when we get to Mars to be able to create a sustainable life? And, and what do we do with all the garbage we produce? You know, we produce it when we breathe, produce it when we eat. And, and so I think it's really interesting but those are problems that, you know, our scientists and researchers and just innovators and entrepreneurs, they figure out. And the byproduct of whatever those solutions will be, will be very interesting to see how they can be used for other things, much like so much of our technology, you know, previously ha has done. Yeah, someone was explaining to me how it is possible. And I know this past year, we had planetary alignment and actually the distance between Earth and Mars is much shorter during certain cycles of certain years. So if you wait till the right year to actually launch a ship to Mars, the distance is much shorter. And then the other component that SpaceX and Elon Musk has been talking about is building a launching pad in space. So then you take a spaceship into space and then you launch it from space during a time when Mars is close to you, and that's how you do it. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, there's there's all sorts of concepts out there, and you can kind of think about it like a highway where there's rest stops or truck stops where you can preposition food, fuel, things that you're going to need for the next leg, and then you can stop there and put things together and then go the next distance. And it's, you know, kind of almost a supply chain, if you would, in, in space. And so, you know, when you think about that, you know, it's, it's really pretty remarkable to think about that infrastructure. You know, I hope we're thinking about the long term of that infrastructure, though, because we've already got a garbage problem up in space. It's pretty polluted already. So we need to do this pretty smart. How polluted is it up there? Pretty bad. You know, you can you can Google space junk and, and you can see the uh, there's all sorts of different apps or pictures that show the space junk belt. Um, you know, where do all those satellites, where does all that stuff go? You can push it if you leave enough propulsion on those systems, you can push it further into space. But space is different than here on Earth. And it just it stays within that gravitational hole, if you would, around the Earth. And it's just kind of sitting out there. Does it ever fall back to Earth? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. 
but by the time it gets through atmosphere, it burns up and, you know, hopefully it, uh, it burns up and doesn't uh, create too much problem. What are your thoughts on going to the moon in that we went to the moon, but we haven't been back? Do you think we will be going back to the moon? And do you think citizens could one day go to the moon and do privatized travel to the moon? Do you think that's in the future? Yeah, sure. Why not? I think we've got uh, we've got people now going up and going to take a couple rides around Earth, and and so we're see, starting to see the uh, the beginning of, of space travel. So why not? I think again, the big uh, the big thing there was the cost of launch. You know, I forget exactly how many millions and millions of dollars it cost. It used to cost uh, to get a, a pound of anything up to space. You know the price point is is coming down lower than that, but it's still tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, to get things in space. And so I think it's interesting and and it's exciting. I just think you know we need to also do it in a in a very smart way and make sure that we're environmentally, if you would, doing that. Do you think there's a reason we haven't been back to the moon? There's all sorts of reasons. There's the politics of it. There's the cost of it. I think it's primarily the cost. And like I said, until just recently, it was really like, why? For what purpose? And so, you know, I think the the, the political part of it, it around space is we have issues here on Earth. Let's solve these. And so I think that's a that's a dynamic. Speaking of which, last question about space, because I'm fascinated with your background <laughs> on space. I know there's a lot of other things to talk about, but we recently launched a new division of our military with Space Force. So what's your thought on space warfare and the future of that? You know, unfortunately, it's a possibility for sure. You know, if space becomes a place for commerce, just as the oceans did hundreds of years ago, we'll need the ability to have safe passage. You know, there's all sorts of discussions around that and all sorts of thinking around how do we do that and how do we do that with global citizenship? Because we don't own, the United States doesn't own space. It is the the ultimate high ground. So I think, you know, I would hate to see that need, but it's also being prepared. Yeah. Well, shifting gears with your company, Hoffler Associates. Where did you pull your data from? Was it microeconomics, trends? What were the things that you point to as you are looking for future indicators? So the company was started by Alvin and Heidi Toffler, who were really famous futurists, if you would. And they published a book back in the 1970s called Future Shock. And Future Shock was really the first kind of introduction to the knowledge age. They, in fact, they they coined this this information age that there was, there was going to be such massive change that uh, you know humanity would be future shocked. It wouldn't even recognize its its own future. So Alan Heidi really brought a framework for thinking about change. What is different in the industrial age? What would be different in the the information age? And so. We relied on that 
big macro model with some concepts about what would be different in the information age. And then the data that we brought was all of the things that you just mentioned. It was trends or information, or we would call them factoids of the future. And what we were looking at was across all industries, across all kind of functional areas, geopolitical, financial. But really, the big thing was looking at how humanity was changing in the information age. Love it. Well, you are a powerful businesswoman. And in today's day and age, what are your thoughts about being an entrepreneur? And also, what advice would you have for other women who want to aspire to become a CEO and work their way into a position to help people? I think what's happening here with business, and I, I wrote uh, I wrote my my book here, Convergence, Technology, Business, and the Human-Centric Future. And I wrote it because I think there's something really fundamentally changing around business. And this applies for traditional businesses or businesses that have been around a long time or those that are that are starting up. And I talk about these three kind of forces that are coming together, that are converging, that are really going to to change, I think, how we must think about business. We're in the information age. We just started it a couple decades ago. Um, It's not, we haven't been in it for very long, but what information technology has allowed people to do is connect in ways that we were never able to do. It's allowed us to find people, like-minded people to connect with, to share ideas, to collect our voices around, you know, what we want for our future. So we have this kind of power shift, if you would, to humans, humanity, the human system that I talk about. And that, when we think about that from a business perspective, it's pretty interesting because now we can't just view people as employees or customers. We need to think about what some of these things are that they're asking for for the future. Fix inequality, fix the the pay gap, address diversity and inclusion, uh, address the environment. These are problems or responsibilities that people are looking to business to solve. And so what does that mean? It It means something as simple as if you're ready to launch a new product and you're putting packaging, is it environmentally safe? Is it, you know, what are you going to do with that product when you, um, when somebody no longer wants to, to use it? How are you going to dispose of it? And so there's a, there's a front end uh, thought as to where you get the materials. Are you destroying parts of the earth to get this, this material goes into the, pa- the, the, the new product as well as what happens on, on the back end. And so, you know, that's the challenge for, I think, any business you brought up what it means for a woman. You know, I think in a lot of cases, it's not much different between men and women. But I do think women have a different kind of perspective sometimes that really can be value add to these these discussions. When I was younger and just getting into the workforce, I probably hid some of my emotions too much. But I would say embrace those because those emotions are what makes you authentic. It's what makes you real. And I think that's what leaders need to be in the future. They need to 
bring that authenticity. They need to be humble. They need to show emotion that says, you know, I really don't know what the answer is, but collectively, I think we can figure this out and to use it as, use it as a superpower. I love it. You know, I think leadership is changing and I think they need to think about who they really are versus just what they do. Being very self-aware of who you are, what you believe, what biases you have, how do you make decisions, why do you make the decisions that you make are all very important to kind of understanding who you are in that role. I think that opens up the ability then to to really understand other people and their perspectives. Once you do that, you can hopefully tap into the human system more than what you've what you've done because I, I really do believe that is the source of innovation and energy and success. It's not the organizational processes and structures and, you know, kind of the the rigidness of an organization. It's really allowing people to bring their best to the organization. And so that's important for leaders to be able to show that. Yeah. The emotional quotient, the EQ is more important than the IQ in, in a leadership capacity. And that's so spot on. You talk about being a humanist and taking a human-centric approach to business and leadership. So tell us, you know, what does it mean? What does the word humanism mean to you? So for me, it means, and I, it can be a loaded word. I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of definitions. But uh, for me, it's, it's really realizing that, you know, people are probably more alike then we are different. And, you know, when we understand that, we'll value people and treat them with all respect. And I've traveled a lot uh, around the world. I think I'm up to over 60 countries or, or some, and, and some countries are not your typical first world countries. Some of them are very third world countries. And when you get to know people and you start talking to people and you see, we, they, we all have the same kind of hopes, dreams, and desires. We want to do better for our families. We want to give them a better life. We, you know, we want to strive. We want to be proud of ourselves. And once we realize that, I think um, we can bring that home to our, our organizations and and really take that perspective that people inside our organizations are not just paid employees. They have hopes and dreams and desires and fears and and they have a lot more to offer than than a lot of times what their job description says. So, you know, I think the challenge for leaders today is to tap into that and tap into the whole person. That is so good. So, contrast that with the future and technology and what are your thoughts on biotech and integrating technology with humans? How do you think that's going to affect our world and the definition of humanism? You know, in one way, technology could allow us to really understand what it means to be human even more so. If we matched up the benefit of technology to the benefit of, of people, right? What, what are people really good at? What is technology really good at? And really understand how that technology people team works. We spend a lot of time pulling people teams together. We need to do that with technology too. And, um, you know, how, how are we going to 
integrate that with the advanced technology that's coming over over the horizon. You know, we already do this right now. We've had technology forever. Fire and sticks and all of that was technology. So, you know, we we evolve with technology. I think the thing that kind of concerns me right now is that we're looking at technology as a solution to most of our problems. And we think about that from a, uh, from a business is trying to make us more efficient, trying to make us smarter, trying to make us faster. And I think maybe we're not stepping back and saying, well, what part does people need to play in this? And that's where I talk about this balance between technology and, and people, because technology is not that panacea. It's not going to solve all of our problems. And, you know, I think it can be very confusing and, and hard for leaders right now because they don't, they may not even understand the technology, but they know if they don't get some of it, they may be falling behind. And that's not a good place to be. So take our time, try to understand and, and really kind of rebalance that technology perspective and that people perspective. And this seems to be the theme of your newest book, Convergence. So tell us a little bit more. You already mentioned the book, but what is Convergence? It kind of sounds like an ominous name. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, actually, I think it's a very hopeful. Um, it's very hopeful because we do have this power shift to people. We have this sometimes just incredible technology that could really be good for, for people and, and uh, you know, our businesses and, and such. I think the other interesting thing that's happening is there's really, there's a lot of talk about what is the sole purpose of a business. You know, we see that with organizations such as Conscious Capitalism or B Corp or, you know, the members of the Business Roundtable talking about it's no longer good enough to just serve shareholders, that we need to take a broader perspective of the people inside our organizations, our community, our environment, you know, really start to solve some of those problems. And so, I think, you know, with these three kind of forces coming together, it's a, it's a real opportunity to create a very different business. And I, you know, I got to admit, I, I did a little bit of homework on, on what you're doing and some of the companies that, that you have in your portfolio. They look like they're spot on, that they were created as kind of human-centric organizations. And I just think that there's, there's just real opportunity to make a difference. And still make money. You know, no one's saying not to make money. I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm pro-business. But I think we can make money and be responsible. Yeah, one of my mentors once told me, have a company that has a great mission, but always remember, without margin, there is no mission. <laughs> right, right. And you, you have to have a future market to operate in it too. And yeah. so, you know, and you have to have, you know, people to work, you know, that want to come to your company. And so I think that all, it, it all kind of balances out when we take that perspective. Well, we just went through COVID-19 where the world seemed to be more divided than ever. You have a term where you talk about what we thought to be true isn't. You've coined a term obstilage. Obstilage, yes. Obstilage. You know, when you're thinking of the world we're in right now between COVID and then the politics, uh, racial division, I mean, all these polarization. I think there's a lot of polarization out there. 
what are your thoughts on that and, and how obsolage is happening and what do we do about it? So obsolage is, is a, it's obsolete knowledge, right? And obsolete knowledge can be our belief systems or what we believe. It could be how we view what the, the sole purpose of business is. That can be an obsolete, you know, idea if you think that it's only to maximize shareholder profit. That's, no, it's, it's not. You know, I think it's interesting for me. I, I guess I hold out more hope. Yes, it feels like we're polarized. Yes, it feels like there's all these, um, these different kind of, you know, perspectives. And I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy because, you know, we have people that have not had a voice before speaking out. And, and I think that's what it means to be in the information age. And maybe they have to go a little bit uh, full tilt on getting their message across, but they haven't had that opportunity in the past. I think, you know, over time, if we listen and we try to understand their, their the perspective, try to stand in their shoes, I think we will, like we always do, come to some kind of understanding. And so I think this is a very normal evolution in our history. You know, it just comes at us so fast and so furious and it comes at us every moment uh, on social media or through any kind of news stations that I think that's where it feels different. It's because it's 24-7, 365. I think it's, it's positive discourse. I think it's, um, it's evolution. I do think it's, it's growth. Well, on that note, as a futurist, what would you say the next 10 years are going to look like? You know, from a business perspective, I think um, I think we will continue to have this pressure for businesses to be more focused on outcome of responsibility. I think there's going to be more pressure on being more environmentally safe, um, embracing human needs, trying to balance out some of the inequality. So I think, you know, those are going to be challenges, challenges for business. I think, you know, in the broader sense, I think we're going to continue to have what feels like some real conflict here. You know, I think it's just normalization. It's normalization of where we are, you know, in this evolution of being in the information age. It's just, (laughs) there's all sorts of questions and problems that we've got to solve because now we're all connected with each other and, and we have the ability to talk to each other. Wow. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for being on the Action Catalyst. It was insightful. I feel more innovative than I was before talking <laughs> with you. Uh, I'm excited to go to the moon one day. So maybe me and you can get on a ship and, and go to outer space. Oh, I tell you, that would be awesome. Wouldn't that be a hoot? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on your show. It's been a real pleasure and a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.